Hey guys, we have a great podcast for you today. We have Chef Kwame Unwachi. He is one of the brightest young talents we have in America today. A best-selling author as well with his memoir, Notes from a Young Black Chef. A very important memoir. He's calling from Portland as he is wrapping up production on this season's Top Chef. And we talk a lot about his memoir being sort of moved into a movie and that entire process. Very fascinating stuff. And uh, we just sort of shoot the shit. So stay tuned for some Kwame. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Well, Chris... Ying and I are uh, in the process of trying to get a couple shows filmed. So I've been watching anyone, particularly <laughs> food TV, with yeah. um, special attention because it is a whole different ballgame. It is. Um, it is. It's very, very intense. And, for, you know, for the, for the right reason. You know, as one person gets sick, it shuts down all production. So we've been good so far, knock on wood. We're almost at the end of production. And, you know, we've been, we've been doing pretty well. Wait, wait. How many weeks have you been there now? I've been here since September 1st. Holy shit. Yeah. So like six weeks. Six weeks. Are you losing your mind? I'm pretty good. I'm good. Um, It's tough eating takeout every single day. I don't have any more cravings. You know you get takeout (laughs) when you have a craving. (laughs) I'm out of them. I don't know what to... What to order anymore? It's just it's tough. Did you get that Hyannis chicken rice place in Portland? That's pretty good. Nongs. Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Multiple times. I'm t- I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. <laughs> it's really, really good though. When was the last time you cooked something, Kwame? Um it it's been before I was oh well I do demos, like Zoom demos and stuff like that. And they have like a kitchen set up for us. So that, but like real cooking, it's been at least two months. Since I've just had like, and then it's also been like two months since I've had hot food because I get delivery and it's like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but I'm so hungry by the time it comes that I don't want to put it in the microwave. I just want to eat it straight away. Oh, man. man. (laughs) The worst thing is, the worst thing is thinking you you order delivery. So like you you just forgot to press that send button and you're like, where the hell is my delivery? And you look and it's like, do you want to order? Do you want to like complete your order? And it's like, ah, (laughs) So. I've been there. I've been there. That's that's the worst feeling in the world. That is You're like, worse. my food should be here any second now. And you look at your phone. No. No. Never more minutes. Yeah. So, Kwame, just to catch up, where are you at right now? I mean, like, with work and life outside of, say, Portland. Once you're done with production, where are you off to? Um. So, I'm off to L.A. Did you move I, to L.A.? I'm, I'm in between L.A. and New York. So, I'm, like, doing personal chef work out there for some, like, really like celebrity clients or whatever. And um, I'm also working on my book and then my movie as well. So like the script is done from the movie. So we are combing through that, you know, to make sure it's reflective. Because, you know, writing a book, you have to edit out so many things. A movie is even more. So you have to really make sure. Um, It's expected more so than weird. So if people don't know, your book got picked up as an option for a movie and is being made into a movie. Yes. So can you explain what that was like? Did you 
Did you get an offer right away to like, let's turn this into a movie? And were you like, wait, should I do this? This is weird. <laughs> it was wild. It was actually pretty wild because it was before the book even dropped. The galley got to Hollywood and it was circulating. Now, if those don't know, galley is like the first, you know, edition of a book, you know, has all the typos in it and everything. But just to get it out there to people so they can read, you know, the subject matter of it. So, you know, Hollywood had the galley and... I got hit up by CAA and they were like, hey, you know, CAA's, you know, agency out there. Do you want to do you want us to rep you? Because a lot of people in Hollywood have this book and they want to turn it into a movie or a TV show or a web series. And I'm like, sure. So I fly out to L.A. and I just go around to a lot of the networks now. It wasn't just movies. It was, you know, the guys behind Narcos wanted to turn it into this like crazy explosion, you know, gangster series. And I was like, that's cool. I really love Narcos, but, I'm the, you know, I got to pass on that one. And then, um, you know, Courtney Kemp hit me up. She does Power, and she wanted to turn it into this, like, gritty New York, you know, series. Same kind of thing as, like, the Narcos. Um, and I actually really thought about that because I love Power, but I thought it would, it would be too much poetic license uh, with my story. So we didn't go there. And then I'm going to an event one day and Issa Rae calls me and she's like, hey, I read your book. Like, I really want to turn this into a TV show. And it was like, it was just like coming at me from all sides. ABC wanted to do like a fresh off the boat kind of tale of the book. And then I got a couple movie offers from Annapurna, Focus, and A24. And the reason I went with A24 is because one, it came with Lakeith Stanfield as playing me. And that's like my favorite actor. And I always was like, if somebody wanted, if somebody was going to play me in my movie or TV show, I'd want it to be him. But also they wanted to main, remain the integrity of the, of the story. And I think that was the most important thing because I, I, I never wanted that to be jeopardized, the integrity of the story. But I know as an avid book reader that the movie is never the same as the book. So I knew there would be a lot of changes in that vein. Is the title of the movie going to be the same as your book, Notes from a Young Black Chef? They're messing with titles now, but right now it looks like it may be called Kwame. How do you feel about this? Because it's like, it's all, no, I mean, the book's out there. Like Now, a movie, I can't wrap my head around it because I, I just came up with a book and I'm not even entertaining because it's just too fucking weird to wrap my head around <laughs> right now. How, do, how, are you, how are you doing it? Uh, I mean... I don't know. I just roll with it. You know, it's like it, it's an amazing opportunity. It's very surreal for sure to be even thinking about that. I'm going to be portrayed by somebody else. And also my story is interpreted by someone else and then put into a script. So it's um, it's wild for sure. But I'm, I'm also just like really, really, really excited. You know, and I don't think it's really going to hit me until I'm on set and it's like action. And this guy's walking around saying the things that I said you know, in the past and doing the things that I do and then seeing, you know, the trailer for it, I think that's when it will really, really hit. But right now, it's like that skeptical optimism of like, is this thing really going to happen? We'll see. And then I get the script. I'm like, all right, is this thing really real? We'll see, you know, until it, until it's like right there on the screen, then it's going to be like, oh, shit, this is a real thing. So and you're going to be a producer on on this movie as well. Yeah, yeah. Just to guide it. What's your biggest fear about like the end product and what's your like biggest hope for the end product i would say a big of a real fear of mine is people having this idea of me that i can never change you know because I'm, i'll be forever immortalized into this adaptation of my story that is what it is it's an adaptation you know and i don't want to be either pigeonholed or like just just looked at in, in a way that I can't control anymore. You know, that's probably my biggest thing, having my narrative just like go crazy. Um, but my my hope is that a huge population is able to see themselves in me, you know, representation. There hasn't been, you know, really a, a movie or about somewhat of color um, in the food industry. And I think that, you know, this book changed a lot of lives. Um, you know, for people of color feeling heard for the first time of, of things that they've been through or or just seeing something that they can achieve. But movies reach a lot more people than books. Yeah. Um, and I, I could see it becoming something of just a tale where, where if, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, and that's really what I want people to walk away from seeing this film. I mean, in your book, you you talk about it right off the bat. You know, those 
two, if not many more versions of Kwame, right? There's sort of like Kwame All Smiles and Chef Kwame. And and it's 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 a tricky situation. I think it's, it's really interesting that there's going to be this movie portrayal of who you are and your story. But you yourself personally are also out there. You know, you're not like a... <laughs> you're not, you know, some figure from the past or, or like a hermit who doesn't really want their story told, you know, and so the, uh, we're going to see on screen at the same time, like Keith I'm Stanfield living. playing you and, and I'm you. here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's tricky, man. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild, but it's exciting. You know, it's exciting. I'm, I'm able to really reach a lot of people through this, through this film. So we'll see. Only time will tell what'll happen. Can I ask when you were getting the other pitches for this movie of your of your memoir and when they've tried to, you know, add explosions or drama <laughs> or action, do you feel that that is actually what has been so wrong about any portrayal of the culinary industry that they tried to add drama that you don't need? It's already there. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really hit it on the head with a, with a with a movie about food, about being a chef, you know, Ratatouille is probably the closest one, but I think, um, I think people add it because it's Hollywood, you know, and that, that's just, it is what it is. We'll, we'll have an uh, affinity to it or a love for it, seeing just the bare bones of it, but trying to sell tickets to other markets, you know, other, other people that aren't, aren't really in our industry. I think you need some sort of, some sort of draw, something that's a little bit flashy, you know, that romanticizes this, this industry. I think it's just something that naturally happens when you go, when you need viewership, you know, whether that's TV or that's, or that's movies. I think it's, it's just something that happens. Kwame, I got an idea. If it's not too late for the script, I think we could change it where you are 007. <laughs> and this is your disguise as a chef that have gone through all of these trials and tribulations only to wind up in Portland in a bubble filming Top Chef. It is That's the it. perfect, perfect cover. And I think that is a, a good gateway for a lot of people to, 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 to hear your story. There. How do you know Let's that I'm it. not a secret agent? How do you know that? That's what I'm trying uh, to say. Who have you been <laughs> talking to? Who do you know? Oh, it hit too close to home. The, the joke hit too close to home. Where are you on that, Kwame? Just I, I know that Dave wrestles with this a lot, this thing of, of like adding drama. And I, I think you were talking about with like, you know, the Narcos approach or the power approach. Like, do you find yourself resisting, you know, dramatizing things, exaggerating things in this form of, of the movie? Or are you like, you know, do you understand why it has to happen? I, I understand why it has to happen. I 100% understand why it has to happen. Be, because for one, you can't even tell the whole story of the book within an hour and a half, two hours. You know, so you're going to need to fuse together certain parts in order for it to make sense without jumping around a million times. Um, because you can take any sector of my life and make a movie out of that. Me getting sent to Nigeria for two years, like that's a movie. You know, me growing up in New York City, that's a movie. You know, me becoming a kingpin uh, in college, uh, selling drugs to the whole town, that's a movie. Being in this food industry for the past six years and going on Top Chef and traveling around the world and doing pop-ups and raising money, failing, opening up another restaurant, like, I think that's a movie. So I think it, it just has to happen in order to really tell a story that's a little bit cohesive and that makes sense. You know, I don't want to romanticize anything to when I'm walking away from a building and it explodes. Like, that's that's outrageous. But I think something where, where you're able to put together two different parts of my life into one in order to just uh, tell a smooth story that people can understand I think that's that's necessary in filmmaking. You know, now that I'm a professional filmmaker and executive <laughs> producing, I can t I, we can do a whole podcast on that. You know, Chris, but I don't want to get into all that. <laughs> yeah, we could do it inside the producer studio with Kwame on watch you here. I mean, but as you said, there there have been many chapters in your life that could all be extrapolated to be a movie in and of itself or a TV series. Mm -hmm. But now you're still relatively young, and your life is also just beginning. So. It is. You know, it's sort of the chicken and an egg thing now, right? Like, what's next for you then? You know, because because <laughs> like this could just be like a trilogy, really. You it know, could be notes from an old black chef, <laughs> middle aged black chef. Yeah, it's set up for it. I just gotta, I just gotta continue to live. Um, you know, I think what's next for me is just living. You know, I, I think I also have to respond to the times right now, like. 
the times that we're in right now, they're unprecedented. Like I, I was going to open up a restaurant in New York City and, you know, I'm glad I didn't, you know, push, push, push to sign that lease right before. But I don't know what this restaurant is going to look like for the next couple of years. So I have to respond to that and move and shift um, and, you know, the buzzword of the year pivot into continuing my momentum and continuing in my path. And before it looked like just continuing to open up restaurants, continuing to open up restaurants. And now it looks a little bit differently. Now I'm, you know, now that I'm in this this realm of even looking at scripts and thinking about how to convey a message on camera, um, you know, I'm thinking of getting into more things with TV, you know, creating my own content, creating my own shows. Because I've been in the room with these people now, they're also like, what else, what other ideas do you have? So I'm looking at myself as a chef and looking at the career a little bit differently than I thought. You know, before it was a little bit one-dimensional. You know, you've definitely broke the mold in expanding the ways that we can leverage our brand and our expertise. But now I'm looking at it in that same way that I can do it. So I'm excited for you. Always been rooting for you. Would you agree with this assessment that I find myself telling a lot of people in Hollywood and I think they always sort of chuckle? They don't do it to my face, but I feel like they're chuckling. Yeah. When I say we've been content story creators, that's what restaurants are. We tell stories. And I think when I tell them that, they're like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Crazy Chang, whatever. <laughs> but I'm like, no, I mean, like, we just happen to do it through food. Your mm-hmm. food is about telling a story. This is just another way of telling stories, whether it's through film, audio, TV, whatever. Exactly. Would you agree? Would you agree with that? Hell yeah, absolutely. We tell a story, we create. We're vibe creators. That's it. It's like the restaurant is a vessel to tell a story. And if you have that story, you can start to build momentum and people will want to come back to relive that story. And that's really what it is. And you're creating a vibe more than anything else. There are restaurants that are really, really great. But if their dining rooms are stale, they don't really they don't have return customers. It's not a place that a lot of people want to gravitate towards unless it's a very specific thing and they're crushing that. And that thing still is their story, you know, and 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 that's it. So I, I totally agree with you on that. We spoke after you won your Beard Award for Rising Star Chef. And I, I think I basically said something to you or you, we reached out. I, I don't remember how, but we like, it was, it was like auspicious and fortuitous that we were talking. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, dude, you got to be careful, man. You got to be careful. All these fucking vultures that are, anyone that says they're your friend now. Yeah. You better not fucking trust them. I know exactly what you said. You said to say no to everyone for the next year. How many people <laughs> were like, Kwame, we love you. You got to do this and you got to do that. Oh, so many. I said no. I said no to everyone just because of what you said. <laughs> <laughs> you said a lot of things. It was like a, it was like a two hour long conversation. And I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to remember every, all of this stuff. Let me, let me just hold on to one thing. <laughs> and it was say no to everybody that comes your way. Um, cause I was, I was nervous. I was like, how do I navigate this? You know, I have so much pressure on me now. And it's like, you need to just stand the test of time right now. That's the most important thing you need to do. And by you just say no to everybody, cause there are going to be people waiting for you when you're ready to do something. And it was the best piece of advice I got. Well, I'm, I'm happy to have help because I mean, I saw what was happening. I was like, man, this is, this is going to be a tumultuous cycle. And the best thing you can do is center yourself, focus on your restaurants, which is what you did. Mm-hmm. And just sort of like, if they believe in you, they're going to ask you again down the road. And exactly. I'm so happy that you your movie got optioned and all these opportunities are, are coming your way. So I'm so fucking happy to see that. Because I think one of the things that we we're talking about was how much this food system ultimately is rigged, not just for people that become successful, but how it's stacked against you because of who you are. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I don't know if people quite understand. Again, I, you know, so much of on this podcast this past year, Chris and I have been talking a lot more about getting solidarity from the Asian American community first, right? Get our family straight first. And I say that because I have had to overcome certain things and that has really shaped who I am in so many ways. In the food I make, the kinds of things I say and believe. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if people quite fathom all the things that you have had to overcome. And if you are a white dude, you wouldn't have had any of these fucking obstacles. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's loaded for sure. Um, I don't think people will ever understand, you know, and, and maybe that's uh, not the best way to look at it. But I think unless you go through it, that's the only way you can understand. And the more you try to have empathy with someone, you know, the more you can relate to them. And that's that's why I thought it was so important to put that book out, you know, and it was it was nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking talking about things that people don't really talk about in our industry, uh, you know, quote unquote, outing people or however you want to call it. Um, but just recanting my story and how it made me feel. And no one could take that away from me. And it was it was very difficult at first putting it out there because I, I got hit up by a lot of chefs, you know, people, OGs in the game or like, you know, you don't talk about other people. You shouldn't say this, you know, like, what is this person going to think about you? And I'm like, oh, man, did I make a mistake? And then when I got the outpour of messages and phone calls and people just showing up in my restaurant in tears saying thank you for speaking up because I felt this way for so long in kitchens being pushed out, being the only person of color. The kitchen is just as absolved from you know racism as it is sexism. So like as, as much as that is there that's prevalent, racism is there and it's still there today. You know, a lot of the fine dining kitchens, you know, that we've come up in, they don't look like us at all. And there's a lot of hazing that goes on and involved there that all of that can be swept under the rug. You know, like, for example, I was out just the other day. I was out with Dale Talday and Amar Santana. We were out outside late at night, just hanging out um, in front of the hotel. And there was another group of people across from us, a bunch of white people. You know, I was with Amar and Dale and the cops came over and was like, hey, are you guys good? Pretty much looking to Dale and Amar. And they were like, yeah, we're fine. They were like, "Okay." And I was just like, I'm going upstairs. (laughs) I don't really need to get into any altercations with police officers, especially right now. And, you know, later on, Dale came up to me and he was like, damn, man, I'm sorry. And I was like, for what? He was like, I that's just a snapshot of of your life, of what you go through. And I started, then I started telling him, like, you know, when I was younger, the first, one of the first conversations that we have is how to talk to the police, to make sure that you have your ID on you, you know, to not talk back to them. Whenever we're like old enough to go outside, our parents sit us down and they tell us that, you know, the one wrong move can set us up in jail for the rest of our lives. And, you know, just to make sure that you're thinking wisely about the things that you're doing when you're outside of this house. So like that for me was very second nature, that, that act that happened there. But it was eye-opening for him. And I think telling stories about that, especially people within your inner circle, that's where the true change happens. And that's where they start to really think about the way that they're talking to people, you know, the way that they're uh, hiring, you know, all of those real deep impacts, impactful changes that they can make. I think that's some of the most important ways that you can uh, break into someone and really show them that there's a lot of people that live different lives than you. There's a lot of people that go through so many different things. Um, so yeah, so hopefully this movie will will tell that to a broader audience. Um, but I don't think, you know, to answer your question in short, that people will ever understand, you know, what African-Americans, Black people, Black and brown people have gone through that still go through to this day. You know, I have friends that have worked in kitchens in New York City that you know, just recently told me when he was coming up as a sous chef, the executive chef told him not to hire black people, not to hire women and not to hire Jewish people. And this is like in a fine dining kitchen. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to reveal it, but it's like in New York City, that's very, very popular. And this is maybe 10 years ago. These are obstacles that we have to go through. And then we don't even know that these people are saying these things. <laughs> We're like, oh, I wonder why I didn't get this job. Maybe it's because I'm black. Oh, pull on the old black card, eh? It's like, no, man, this is serious. <laughs> like, It is because mm-hmm. I'm black. You know, like, why aren't there many people in these kitchens that look like us? There's a reason, there's a design, and, you know, it needs to change. And maybe this is the reckoning that that's happening right now. I, I don't know, but it's, it's just what I know. That reaction you hinted at, that thing you get where it's pulling out the black card again, you know, mm-hmm. I got to hear this old saw it really does have a silencing effect, unfortunately, right? Like, because so many of those stories you're talking about, like telling Dale about like, no, you know, like in a black family, you have a, you have the birds and the bees conversation. And then you got the, how you talk to cops conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember we, you know, like so many of those stories end up that would be life defining, (laughs) you know, for a white person, one bad interaction with a cop would be a story that a white person would dine out on for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Me and I mean, not just white people, like for for me and Dave too, you know, and so often it's like, I'll, I'll know somebody for years and years and years as a friend and as a person. And then a story like that will come out 
<laughs> and it's just like, wow, it's just been suppressed because you yeah. just, you know, you don't want to define yourself by these stories either, but you also are just like, oh, I didn't know that you wanted me to talk about this because usually people are just like, oh, it's a black card again. It's fucked up on a tremendous level. Yeah. Kwame, can I ask, because I've been asking this to myself for a while, right? Now that there is this reckoning and this, let's just say in food media, now that people want to talk about equality and the systemic problems, whether it's racism or not, right? All the, the insidious problems in culture that are magnified in the microcosm of the food world. I know that this has always been sort of a problem, whether we've addressed it or not, right? Like, but at least in the food world, now that people are trying to talk about it, whether it's representation and just say recipes or anything, I was like, where was this before? Why does it take this moment for the world or the food media to be like, oh, yeah, 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 no, 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 now's the time where I'm going to talk about it. I was like, you've had all this fucking time. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what I want to ask is, not that I'm not happy that their movement is happening. I think before we move on, we need to ask ourselves why the fuck it happened to begin with. That's a great question. It's a great question. And why were people so complicit with it, more importantly, up until now? And now they want, everyone wants to jump on and attack and, you know, and publicly stone people. You know, some of these people were, were right there hanging out with these people while they were doing this stuff and they were complicit with it. So that's also a very interesting question that I have for people that are like all down with this reckoning that are first to attack. It's like, you are writing all these stories about these people and making them into these, you know, quote unquote, food gods up until this point. And now because, you know, the scale has teetered, it's more of an attack than anything else. So, I mean, I think it was, it's just the norm. It's just what people expected. That's just what it is. You know, why, why was, why am I the second recipient of the James Beard Rising Star of color ever? And the first person before me was Marcus Samuelson, like black person. Like that's, that's, and it's 20 years ago. Hey Kwame, you know I won I mean? that shit too. I'm, I'm, I'm perfect color. I'm talking about black man. I'm talking about. Uh, when you said that, I was like, is Dave the other one? <laughs> very big difference, man. And I want people to know that it's a very big yeah. difference. The obstacles I had to overcome versus being a black person in the coloring world. Very big fucking difference. And I will yes. never, ever equate those two as the same. But one of the clearest obstacles that I've identified long ago was going back to that story, the narrative, the content that we create when we have the opportunity to finally express ourselves in your own kitchens. The obstacle to tell yourself to an audience that doesn't know what the fuck you're making and to be like, no, 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 no. This is good. And this is something that you're going to enjoy. And don't tell me it's some ethnic label shit. You know what I mean? Like that's a whole nother thing to overcome. And I want yeah, to be that like, glitch, be that glitch in the matrix. Yeah, you know, that's one of your rules, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I remember because like um, when Paul Carmichael, who got a great review, uh, you know, he's been crushing it in Australia. A critic that I will not name contacts me, and they're like, "Man, how come you let Paul go to Australia?" And I was like, I literally cursed them out. I said, "Fuck you." You had him in New York City, and you didn't fucking love him. You didn't I went to my shit. Yeah. I used to sit across just to look at him to see that I, I could become that one day. You know what I mean? I was so pissed. I was like, we yeah. gave him a platform and no critic gave a shit about it. No. That's the shit I'm talking about. It's fucked up, man. They have no cultural connection. And that's why we need more critics of color. There are no critics of color right now. There is. There's Tejo. There's a, there's a couple. There's a couple. But there's no black, prominent black... African-American critics in America. Is there? Ying, is there? No. Well, that's unacceptable. And not, not in a mainstream publication, for sure. There's, there's some that, you know, that review and, and do, do, like, you know, food blogs and stuff like that. And, but not for a main publication. And that's the problem. There's no cultural connection. There's no people putting them on the pedestal. I had to, I had to go to Mapesh. I took my niece with me, and we sat across from Paul, and I just watched him. That's it. I used to go to Red Rooster in the morning before I got on the train to sell candy, and I would watch Marcus Samuelson conduct his pre-shifts with his team, and I would just watch him. And I would see, I would be like, if I can see them, if I can see them doing this, I can do it. 
There's no one that has a cultural connection that really wants to put these people on pedestals. That's just really it's, what it is. It still just makes me white hot mad because I'm like, Paul's telling a story of slave culture, the food of his people of the islands. And I was like, if there's a story to be told, it was the only time I've ever tried to pitch a fucking story in my life. Mm-hmm. I was like, guys, this guy's doing simple. something extraordinary and it's delicious and he deserves a bigger platform. What do I need to do? Am I the problem that's like preventing people? Like, I'll do anything I can to give him the platform he needs. And when that critic was like, well, you know, you let him go to, I can't believe you let him go to New York from New York to Australia. You let him go to Australia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the even more fucked up part. Paul's putting out this food, telling the story of the slave trade and who gets to fucking rate him and judge him and tell him that his food is good. Yeah. Same thing with my restaurant. Yeah. I didn't Nobody have any with any frame critics of reference come in. For, yeah. Yeah. I didn't have any black food critics come in, but I had a bunch of black people coming in to support and to like finally see themselves reflected on a plate, finally being able to celebrate their culture while celebrating a special experience. But we had to get, you know, this white approval before it was uh, catapulted, essentially. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Businesses have had to be flexible this year from working remotely to pivoting their business models for long-term survival and growth. Restaurants are moving their dining outdoors and adding takeout and catering. The entire hospitality sector has had to change how they operate in order to make money. It has been a great struggle. So if you're in charge of hiring for your business, these pivots have made your job even more challenging especially if you have to hire for brand new roles. Thankfully, there's one place that you can always count on to make hiring faster and easier. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. When you post on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job boards with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Let ZipRecruiter take hiring off your plate so you can focus on growing your business. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Last question on this subject. I was asking myself, and I'm continuing to ask myself this, as I become more confident in who I am, and, you know, I've always think that I've made something that is Korean without it ever being Korean, but I've always wanted to explore it on my own terms, but I've been fighting my entire career about how to make sure that I'm not westernizing it to the point where it's, I'm making something so white people will like it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, I think that I'm doing that to... I think ultimately cast a wider net and to be subversive. But how do you do that? What is what is the goal with not just you or myself or any person trying to tell their food in stories and their stories through food? How do you give advice to someone to, to find that balance where it's not esoteric, it's not going to promote xenophobia, but it's open? Because a lot of times, like that first sort of cultural infiltration of another cuisine has to be whitewashed in some way, right? Mm-hmm. What is your stance on it now? Well, my thing is, you know, we're going to we're going to interpret food how we see it now through our lens of of what we've been through. That's just that's just it is what it is. It, it's the same thing of someone in your family is going to make something different than your aunt's going to make a potato salad different than your grandmother, you know, and that's not whitewashing, that's just their their point of view and and how they see food. I think 
in terms of integrity with your food, I have a golden rule with myself. Now, it's not with anyone else. You know, I'm not going to judge anyone else. But for me, if it's a dish that I actually grew up eating, then I don't mess with it. That's just it. Like, I'm not going to make a jerk chicken roulade, you know, and stuff it with a fucking, I don't know, <laughs> uh, collard green farce in the center or whatever. Like, I'm making jerk chicken. <laughs> that's it. It's like I promise I made... that's on a menu somewhere. Come on. It I mean, is. I, can, I, I know can, it I, is. I, 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 exactly. I can tell you what that person looks like, too. <laughs> don't. Like a, don't. Like don't. Stop. 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 Just We're like, not going there. We're not going there. <laughs> but what uh, what I'm saying is like, okay, I'm going to take it and I'm going to look through the way that I view food now. So I'm going to take it, I'm going to make a jerk brine and I'm going to brine the chicken for two days. I'm going to make my own jerk marinade and I'm going to marinate that for a day. And in, in in terms of like adding different things that'll heighten, you know, the acidity, I may just add fresh tamarind and lime juice, you know, instead of just lime juice, because I know what that would do to the paste. And then I'm going to import the pimento wood from Jamaica and I'm going to smoke it over that wood. That's the way that I would view it now. And that's not really messing with it. And I don't need to tell everybody that when I bring it to the table, you know, like I will remain the integrity of that dish. I'm going to do it the way that I think is how I can get more flavor into it. Mm. And uh, it will be exciting and a little bit different, but it will still be like jerk chicken when you eat it. That's my golden rule. A goosey stew. That's the dish that you had at that. So good, um, man. Yeah. And it was, yeah, I may have had cucumber flowers on it or whatever, but it was still just a goosey stew um, with monkfish. That's it. If it's a dish that I've never had within my wheelhouse of, you know, Caribbean or Africa, then I feel like I have the poetic license to take that and interpret it because I'm never going to have that point of reference from a point of nostalgia. It's just, it's only a point of exploration. Now you need to pay homage to that and not go crazy left and do roulades and things like that. But I think you can still, it's still left up to interpretation. If that is of your culture and you want to explore that, explore that, dig deep, find the origin, make it the proper way the first time, and then have your fun. So my golden rule is if I grew up eating it, I don't really mess with it. If I want to explore, I can explore and I have that license because it's the food of my people that I'm just trying to understand and also continue to put on a pedestal if that makes any sense no it makes complete sense and it, and i hope it makes sense to anyone else listening as well one of the problems not problems the thing that i'm trying to account for isn't the problems of fine dining and all the things that people are talking about it's also just the the act of fine dining itself to take food and to make it so it's beautiful and the artistry and the craftsmanship, all of that, I know everyone on the Zoom call appreciates. But what I'm asking is, is fine dining worth saving because of the how it really doesn't, it's not about feeding people. I just want now food as it is. You know what I mean? Like no more, no more bullshit. Like give me a bowl of chili, that's it. Give me a bowl of anything. And I don't know if you can do that in, in, in like the ambiance and fine dining, all the things that like we all love. I love that as much as anyone else, but I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is that a detriment to the education and ultimately deliciousness to get other people to understand it? Well, I think you got to look at fine dining. You have to break it down, especially people that have been in fine dining, right? A lot of that stuff is delicious and it's in Cambros. And then it gets to the plate and it gets like really beautified and we're putting $20 worth of microgreens on there. We may do a table side component to it. And people will go to fine dining for a show because we all store our food in the same containers. It's in delis, it's in Cambros, it's in... And then when it gets to the vessel, that's kind of where it changes a little bit. You know, maybe instead of carving that duck in, in the back, you bring it up and you show them this beautiful duck and it has an herb bundle sticking out its ass or whatever. And then you take it in the back and, and you cut it and you put it next to one perfect piece of celery or, or, or whatever vegetable or fruit you're doing. But that celery and stuff is in a cambro. And if I wanted to just put it on the plate like that and put the duck on top and not arrange it as beautifully and put it on a, instead of a $300 plate, a $20 piece of china, it would be the same as, as as another restaurant. But I think what the problem with fine dining, a lot of the laurels are rested on service. And if you strip down that service, how fine is fine dining? If you strip down that service and that Disneyland effect of having, you know, one person in the kitchen per one person in the dining room, 
and then they have to really push to get that food out, how would you still be calling it fine dining? I mean, we're finding that out right now, right? When there is no, exactly. when some fine dining restaurants are trying to serve their food and there's no service. And you're servers. getting this takeout stuff. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to continue to pay $100 for this because you can't put that hospitality in the box. You know, that's what a, a good friend of mine, Karen Akunowitz, said when she was trying to redo her restaurant. She's like, it's tough. I can't put hospitality in a box. So it's a, just a different experience, a different ambiance. I've had better food on the side of the road in Guadalajara at a taco stand than I've had in a three Michelin star restaurant. Why is that one not fine dining and that's fine dining? That's okay dining, if you look, if you ask me. But like <laughs> that taco and that love that went into that and all of those different salsas, that has just as much flavor as a puree that I've had, or if not more, in a three Michelin star restaurant. If they took the time to plate it and put it on a vessel, we'd be calling it one of the world's 50 best. But since it's coming out of a cart and putting it in a little tinfoil, it's not the same. You, you just cut, Kwame just cut straight to the heart of the issue <laughs> that I've been very passionate about for a long time is ripping away what these categories are, right? I hate it yeah. when something, anything that's, quote, an ethnic restaurant can only achieve a two-star status in the New York Times. Yeah. I'm like, that's fucked up. Why? If it's as good because as of service, else, yeah. Because of that service, people want people have this fucking European idea of service that they've brought to the states, and that makes a restaurant stellar. We don't have. There's no profit in that. That's not a real business. So the people that are only put on pedestals, the people that have a billion dollar backer, that it's a passion project. This is silly. That's why it's been so narrow for so many years. That's why you know, thirty percent of the. BIPOC winners of uh, the, the James Beard Awards are on this call right now of the Rising Star. No, man, it's powerful to hear this coming from you. And I'm happy that we're talking about it because where else do you hear this fucking shit? <laughs> no one's going to speak about it. No one, you know, a lot of people are going to talk and not really do anything. And, you know, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I do think we need to diversify the, the critic pool, but also I think us as as a people need to change our perspective on what makes a, a great restaurant great. Um, where's the where's the balance? I mean, like both of you, I mean, knowing both of your stories at a certain point in your young careers, you both aspired to the three Michelin star <laughs> fine dining thing. I mean, you both, I mean, Kwame, you were, you were, you were in there. I mean, you guys have spent time in top kitchens, some overlap between those kitchens. Where's the balance between, you know, you guys sound disillusioned by that now, but I think like so much of your, professionalism and I mean the core of who you are as chefs is still informed by that so like if you're talking to a young cook you know are you telling that young cook like fuck fine dining don't ever worry about that oh that's a great question um I think that there is a level of education that happens in fine dining kitchens it's it's like a school because it's Disneyland you know because someone can come over and throw away your quart of brunoise peppers to make you do it again because they don't really care about food costs. And there's not many kitchens that you're going to get a chance to, to do that in a, in a day, make two quarts of Brunoise peppers. Like it's just not, it's not a thing. <laughs> um, so I think there's a level of education that happens there, but I, but I also think there's a level of abuse that, you know, people aren't really going to tolerate. I don't think a lot of people have the mental dexterity to go through that. And I also think it's a privilege to be able to afford to not get paid a workable or a living wage. You know, for me, I I remember I got, I was trying to get an externship at the Fat Duck, you know, uh, um, a stage at the Fat Duck. And after a while, I was like, I, I actually can't do this. Like, <laughs> that's the reason why I went to Per Se. I was like, I literally can't go there. I, I can't afford the ticket to go there. I can't afford to not get paid in a foreign land. And even when I was at Per Se, there was a lot of people, there were, you know, a lot of white people that were there with me that, they didn't need the money, you know? They were just there to learn. It's the same thing, you know, in these, a lot of communities that have ice hockey that, that they can go and practice. You know, a lot of communities don't have that or lacrosse fields, like we, don't, we just don't have that. We don't have access to that. So there's a, there's a level of privilege to even be in these kitchens and grind through that, that a lot of people just can't, can't really afford. Yeah, I mean, you talk about it in your book, and how you sort of rustled together the cash to go to cooking school. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I, I think like that's another luxury. 
that a lot of people don't have access to. And and you know, I mean, we were we were going to do this episode. We were going to talk about some of the the rules in the back of uh, of Dave's book here because I, I do think like you both wrote books that are in many ways addressed at young cooks and and trying to give share some wisdom. And I don't want to necessarily go into depth on it, but one of Dave's rules was essentially don't go to cooking school. You can get that education another way. I wonder what your take on that is, Kwame. So, yeah. So that was one of the things that jumped out at me that was like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. It depends on who you're talking to. Because for me, culinary school gave me an in to a lot of contacts that I necessarily wouldn't have gotten. And I may have gotten, but it would have taken me a very, very long time to break into that because we have chefs telling people not to hire people of color in these fine dining restaurants, you know? And having somebody vouch for you is the biggest form of a recommendation in, in the food industry. It's, it's bigger than a resume. You know, a chef will not even look at your resume if someone that they trust has said, yo, you know, like hire this person. So for me, it gave me an, a, an advantage. And I tell people all the time to go to culinary school, especially people of color. Um, if you can afford it, if you can push through and you can make the best of it, you can quantum leap into rooms that you may not be able to move around. Kwame, let me ask then, in the event, in the future, near future, let's hope that we get mm -hmm. there, where it is more equitable for people of color, for African-Americans to get entry-level jobs, to learn the craft, to go get a college education from a great state university and work in a restaurant. Again, like almost every college student that I know, you're working as you go to school. That's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying no education, but I'm saying the, no. the attrition rate for this business is so high that mm -hmm. I hate to see people go to school and be like, you know what? There's just not for me after $100,000 plus in, in loans and shit that you got to pay back. In the event that it is more equitable and you can work and get an education, that is not just culinary school, would you be still so pro-cooking school in the event that restaurants are now more just not being racist? Mm -hmm. Well, that brings me to the fact that there are a lot of brittle spirits out there. So, like, there are a lot of people in kitchens that just work there that never really work their way up, that constantly don't show up, that, you know, go from job to job to job, and they never even get to that sous chef level or CDC level. And then... Like you said in, in your rules, those are the people that go on to be executive chefs of these, you know, resorts. And they're like, I've been working in the industry for 30 years. It's like, yeah, you've been, you know, a prep cook for 30 years. Those are also the same people that go to school and that drop out. They don't take it seriously. So when I'm telling people to go to school, it's like, you got this bill, you're paying money to be there. Hopefully that will inspire you to take this very, very seriously and to um, take everything that you can out of it. I think in every industry or kitchen or whatever, there are going to be people that don't take things seriously, whether it's school, whether it's in restaurants. And we've all had these people walk through our kitchens, you know, that really want to be a chef that show really, really great promise. And then three months later, they're frustrated because, you know, they are either not promoted or someone is being hard on them, but they're just trying to make them better. And then they leave and they go to another restaurant. And they're really, really great in the beginning and they do the same things over and over again. So I think, you know, we need to also look at I don't know if it's this generation. I don't even think it's this generation because I've met chefs that are way older than me that said they've been cooking for so many years. And then I'm like, okay, well, here, get on the line. Here's a piece of fish. Make me a dish. And they can't even sear things properly, you know, and they're stuck in their ways. So I think it's a, if you go to culinary school and you and you just drop out and you don't do anything with your career or you even or even worse, you graduate and you don't want to see that thing through for at least the next five to 10 years to see where you can go. I think that's more of a brittle spirit than anything else. And that that's, again, my biggest concern is I i am tired of all the people dropping out of this business after spending all this money on cooking school. You didn't want to cook to begin with. You thought you liked to cook. You know, someone told you that you can make really good Thanksgiving <laughs> and you took that to heart. And then you went to school, you convinced your parents to pay for it. But this business is thankless. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's thankless. And you, you have to find solace. You have to find like, it has to ground you. Whenever I'm having a bad day, I'm not going into the dining room and shaking hands. I just get on the line. That's the thing that brings me back. And a lot of people are the opposite. You know, when um, the Shaw Bijou closed, I was the worst person in the world for opening a business at a young age. You know what I mean? And they 
shitted on me. I also didn't make some great decisions and the restaurant closed down. I went and opened up a restaurant and didn't tell anybody because I just wanted to cook again without people in my face and talking to me. You know what I mean? It was long out. I did a fast casual, me and my boy. It was an Ethiopian restaurant, Ethiopian fast casual. He played the chef and owner and I was just in the kitchen cooking. It got to the point where it was so popular that Andrew Zimmerman came and did an episode on it for Zimmerman's List. And I didn't come out because I didn't, I still did not want people to know that I was cooking there. And I talked to Andrew about it recently. And he was like, that's crazy. That's still some of the best food I've ever had in a food hall. And it was like, if you can't do that, if you can't just like want to cook for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours without anything, then this is not for you. But if you want to constantly be told that you're great, you know, that's, I think, when it when it becomes a problem, because there's going to be a lot of times when people aren't telling you that you're good. Or people not don't care. They just want to eat yeah. for sustenance. Just lingering on this cooking school thing for a second, there's like an amazing synthesis of the two things you guys are saying that I'm hearing is, you know, Dave's rule is essentially like, if this road is open to you, that you can go to college and work in a kitchen, do that instead of going to culinary school. And Kwame, your sort of like addendum to that is, if you're a kid and that road is not available to you, try to go to culinary school. <laughs> Like, if you really want to do this, if you can't imagine not doing this and you can't do the the college route, then go to cooking school because it'll open doors. Yeah. And everyone's different. You know, I'm not saying everyone go there. And I think the culinary schools have a job to do to really vet, like, vet the people that are coming in because they know. I mean, they know the people that come in that are so bright eyed. So I, I do agree with you in a sense that, like, there's a little bit of taking advantage, but it's a business. Everything is a business. So you can either look at it as woe is me or don't apply. That's that's on you. Do do your research a little bit more before you jump headfirst into something. I think that's also really, really, really important. If you want to go to culinary school, make sure this is the rule I would rewrite. <laughs> this is Kwame's <laughs> addendum to this. <laughs> oh, if man, you want to go it. to culinary school, go. If it doesn't work out for you, shut the fuck up. That's it. I don't know. <laughs> like, because it's on you. It's on you to to have gone there. It's like, you know, you know the curriculum that's it's all online. There's no surprises when you get to culinary school. You can ask for the curriculum in advance of what you're learning. So if you're signing up to pay for all of this and then you decide this isn't for you, that's on you. It's like every other college out there. It's the same thing with liberal arts. Like it's the same thing for lots of colleges. People come out and they don't get jobs. And that's unfortunate, but there are jobs available for people in the food industry. There's plenty of them. And people don't want to work their way up. You know, they don't want to start off at the bottom. And I think that that's also a, a problem. When you guys both were in culinary school and you looked around your class, and, and I don't mean this just in terms of like skin color or race, but like when you looked around, how many other people in your class were, did you see yourself in? Like they're, oh, this is somebody who's like me. Um, for me, there wasn't a lot of people of color. There was one guy is a really good friend of mine. Um, we were in the same class together, Andrew Taylor. I think he's the CDC at MPON now. Um, that was it, you know, but there were no professors of color or anything like that. Were there people who were like in the same sort of life place as you? Did you feel people were like aligned in that way? No, people were partying. People were partying. <laughs> people were like hanging out. People were showing up late, you know, like a lot of the people were, you know, I was, I carried a briefcase around campus. Like I was so on my, on my game, you know, I was a RA, I was a group leader, I was in student government. I was like the exact opposite of what I was when I was in college prior to that. <laughs> and I took it seriously because like, this is my way out. I was like, I, I'm going to the best culinary school in the world. And if I can make contacts here, I'm with the next generation of, of leaders in this industry. And if I can carry myself well and get in the right rooms and make the right contacts, I could, you know, easily become David Chang one day. And, you know, and, and that's the way that I looked at it while I was there. Not a lot of people looked at it that way. So they didn't have the same outcome. A lot of people were there to party. They were there to be in college. But I, I thought of it as, you know, a vocational school. This is a trade school. Take your trade seriously here and you'll have vast benefits after this. What about you, Dave? When you looked around your class, did you see there yourself was, reflected? Uh, an elderly retiree Japanese woman that was like the best student in the fucking class. And then <laughs> there was a Hispanic 
gentleman and there was an Asian American woman that was my partner that quit because she didn't want to be my partner <laughs> anymore. That was it. But so like the elderly Japanese woman was doing it as sort of a on a lark almost. Like she was well, in that's the thing. It's like it was like 99. Like half my class were all these rich people that got out of tech because they retired at a young age and they're like, I want to do what I always wanted to do, which is learn how to cook. <laughs> you know, and and that to me was it still bothers me. I've seen so many kids graduate from all of the culinary schools. When you sit down and talk to them, a lot of them aren't these rich people. They've actually had to scrounge the money together. They've taken loans. And you're right, they're brittle souls. But guess what, Kwame? I was a brittle soul too, but like I learned to be harder. I learned to break every day. And then if I continue to break myself, I will become stronger. And I just become so disillusioned at the business of it that how could a school take money from somebody knowing they can't afford it? Yeah. Knowing that this person is a brittle person. And I, f I still feel that that is, that's criminal. No, that I agree with. That I agree with, for sure. I think it's hard to call it, I think. But Carl, there's no doubt that cooking school is great for people. For certain individuals like yourself, they can flourish. It gives them the system and the resource and the knowledge. But man, you are a rarity that took advantage of it. And I just, I think we need a higher standard of admission for cooking school. Admission. So yeah. that this crucible where we're still going to have attrition rates, but I want people that are in there knowing that this is what I want to do. Like yourself, if you had, put it this way, if you had 50% or let's just say 30% of the student body that took going to cooking school as serious as you, I'm all for it, man. But how many people took it as seriously as you? But do you think it's also uh, kind of like this glamorization of, of being a chef right now that 100%. there's more of an influx of people? You know, people like me and you that have a platform that people are like, oh, I can do that. I'm going to go to cooking school and then I'm going to become a chef really quickly. Or they think it's a, it, it's a fun path, you know? I think there's a lot of people responsible for it for an influx in people just going into the in industry in general. And it's not just on the cooking school. I think it's a business. I think people that are going there are adults. And if you're going to make that decision, like buying a car or buying a house, that's something that you need to really, really take into consideration before you go there. Because should it just shut down then and the people that really want to be there not have a chance to go? And then they make the, the admissions so, they put so much scrutiny on the admissions that now it leaves out people that maybe can't pass that test. Or right. I, I don't know. I don't have the answers. No, I don't know. No, I don't, I don't know. And I know this is, this is like a, 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 a circuitous, not argument, but discussion. Because yeah. for me, it was, and I'm just trying to account for what you said, right? If you're a person of color, African-American, those avenues of just working in a restaurant are not available to you because you're fighting systemic racism just to get in these fucking restaurants. Exactly. Right? Exactly. But I still think this is probably 100% naive. I would encourage people, regardless of your skin color, to work at a restaurant before you go to cooking school. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the criteria for CIA is to work at a restaurant. I 100% agree. You need to work at a restaurant for a year or two before you go to cooking school. So we are in agreement on that, 100%. <laughs> but I mean, the CIA has higher standards of admission than, say, the one that I went to, which isn't even in existence anymore, right? Like, <laughs> the business aspect of it is problematic. And, I, you know, part of what I was also trying to say in that book was if you only learn how to be a chef and how to cook, you're going to be a fucking shitty chef. And Kwame, if you didn't have all your experiences in your life, mm -hmm. moving to Nigeria, selling drugs, whatever, all of these things gave you different perspectives, right? And if you just walked in the CIA without any of that shit and you just were like, I'm going to be the best fucking cook of all time, you're going to have nothing to fucking say. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I would have no texture. I have no depth. I'm in 100% agreement that cooking school is, is a good thing, but it's also not necessary. You can learn so much more in, in kitchens. Um, but I do think if you use it to its benefit, and I'm not saying go there and then come out and be the end-all, be-all, 
But to use that as structure and as guidance, as a guideline, kind of like just a recipe, you know, like mm-hmm. getting a recipe, use it as a recipe and, and it could be beneficial to you. And if you don't follow the instructions and you stop cooking midway through, the recipe is not going to be as good as it could be. Chris, I think Kwame is just a little bit more hardcore about it than I am. I, I the think best, that's like, yeah, that's that, that, like if you if you go and you're a grown up, that's on fucking you. You know what I, I mean? Know. That's what I'm thinking <laughs> too. I'm the, I'm the big old softy here. <laughs> It's like the fucking funniest part is like somehow Dave is coming out as the softie on this and Kwame is like, hey, you're an adult. You chose a good school. It's your fucking problem. But you know who you are, Kwame? You know who you are? You're the kid who like I, uh, you know, when I was in elementary school and they're like, hey, we're going to do this fundraiser. You sell magazines and you earn prizes. And they're like, look at Kwame. Look, at he's got a, a convertible and he earned this hat because he sold 65,000 magazine subscriptions and he did it. And I'm like, hey. If he can do it I within the stupid magazine pyramid scheme, then I'll do it. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm not. But you are an exception. <laughs> I am. I am an exception, and I and I could I could note that you know, especially within my class. Um, but it also it depends on what you want. You know, I had a vision a long time ago of of being in a position like this. You know, and I I wanted it. You know, I would go to the James Beard Awards when they sell when they gave out volunteer tickets, and I would go there and I would sit in the nosebleeds and I would envision my name being called on the screen and I would I would see it and I would try to manifest that. And that's just my vision. I'm not saying that everybody wants to be where I'm at. I know that for a fact. My sister's a chef and she's a chef at a bar and she's very, very happy with that in New Orleans. She does not want to be where I'm at and everyone has their own path. Be, going to culinary school goal shouldn't be David's goal, shouldn't be my goal, shouldn't be your goal. It should be whatever you want to do. And that's the beauty of cooking. There's so many different paths. You can be a food writer. You can be in wines. You can be uh, just an executive chef. You can be a CDC. And, and, and that's okay. So I think also knowing what your goal is is really, really important before you go there and being realistic about that. If you want a convertible, I don't think you should go to culinary school. I got one more question. Maybe Chris does too, before we get you out of here. And I appreciate you for, for giving us your time uh, while you're filming this TV show, Top Chef. You know, one of the conversations we had way back when was, you know, getting that respect and the credibility to, and I know I, I could really feel it because I felt the same way, but it's obviously very different to get the, three mission stars to get the number one ranking to get all of that shit. And I'm now currently at a place where I'm like, well, it happens. Great. But I don't, mm-hmm. I don't personally care about it anymore. Do you still, when it's all the world gets mm-hmm. back to a more safe place and let's just say you're given the opportunity. Do you want to get those things that you wanted before? Being honest with you, I think it would still be nice because there isn't any. And I think that's what the difference is. There's no African and Caribbean restaurants with a Michelin star. So it's kind of like the same reason why I stayed in D.C. It was like, I'll show you. I can do this. You know, like, and that's kind of like a driving force of people telling me that I can't do do something indirectly or not. The fact that there is no African or Caribbean restaurants in America with a Michelin star rating makes me feel that people are telling me that it can't happen. So I want to naturally do that. Is it my number one goal? No, not anymore. And I know I, I spoke to you about it when, you know, we sat down at Co and you were like, yo, it doesn't matter about anything. And I'm like, yeah, easier said than done because you have them, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> you laughed. But I see your point of view now more than ever. The only thing that kind of holds me back into wanting that is that there aren't any. And the moment that I or anyone makes that happen, then there will be more. Then there'll be more people of color that want to open up more restaurants more people of color that don't have to go to culinary school because they can go yeah. to those restaurants and learn their food, right? So like, Respect that's another reason that, yeah. why, you know what I'm saying? So like, I feel I would be lying to you if I said, no, I definitely think that it's important for this generation. And if somebody does it before me, please go ahead yep. so I don't have to do it. No, I'm glad you pointed that out because at least in my peer group, you know, you got a Corey Lee or exactly. people of that genre. And I'm like, man, I always think about that. If Corey Lee didn't exist doing the things that he does, would I push myself to do it? Probably yeah. I would. Hell yeah, you would. I know you. You definitely would. And you would have had him already. <laughs> you would have did it. Corey Lee is holding you back? No. Uh, <laughs> no, no I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I get it. It's like, you know, 
even if someone still did it, I know you, Kwame, you'd still want to do it, but it's not as deep of a priority as it was, regardless. But even still, like, and that's something that I have to remind myself is the past 15 years has been an amazing boon for representation of Asian people. It's still a long way to go, especially when it comes to super high-end dining, right? Mm -hmm. For Asian American chefs specifically. And I hope, and I don't say hope, I think... I want to put in the work. I think anyone that's listening put in the work that the next 15 years, I hope that African-American, black people, not just in America, all over the world, have the ability to eclipse whatever we've been able to do for Asian culture in the next 15 years. So we don't have to have these fucking conversations. I would love to be like, yeah, I don't give a fucking shit about the Michelin star. Yeah, we've done that. Let's now run this shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to see our own guide created. That's what I want to see. Something, something, I don't know. I don't know how to do it or anything, but like, I think it's really important that people judging you actually know what to know how to do your job. And it's really hard for me to have people constantly judge that can't run a service or know what it's like to not make payroll or know what it's like to have two people call out and they're judging you just because they've eaten. (laughs) <laughs> like, I just, it's, it's, it's just a crazy concept to me. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know what's crazier to me? And this is something I've talked to you about. A critic coming in to eat your food because they don't know shit about, say, Nigerian food. But they're yeah. going to bring in somebody that is a Nigerian expert to explain to them what the fuck they're eating. <laughs> Who's usually also white, that by the way. That shit pisses <laughs> me off so much. Pisses me off so much. I went out to eat with a food critic one time. And we went to this Vietnamese restaurant. And I was like, oh, beef and lalut leaves. I love, I love that. I, I, you know, I always stopped and ate it in Vietnam with the crushed peanuts. You know, sometimes they have vermicelli noodles with it. And he's like, what's that? I'm like, oh, it's like this lalut leaf or whatever. You know, they mince beef. I don't know what's in it. Like probably like lemongrass and fish sauce and galangal or whatever. And they wrap it up and grill it. And then they brush it with the sauce. And they came out. I was so excited. And it was with grape leaves. And I'm like, why would they call it this? What is this? And he's like, oh, it's fine. I was like, what do you mean it's fine? I was like, have you been to Vietnam? He was like, no. I was like, then why the fuck are you writing an article on Vietnamese food? This is crazy to me. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah, this is all right. And then the article comes out, glowing review. Like, I, I can't trust, like, I don't know. I've seen too much, David. I've seen too much. <laughs> I don't know what's well, happening. This is, uh, again, the next book, Notes from a Middle-Aged Chef. This is where we're going <laughs> to fucking hear this shit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 